0: So I know that today's speaker is no stranger to many of you. Dr. Mary Lynn Bayless, who earned her MA and PhD from the University of Tennessee, has published numerous articles and book reviews in the Virginia Cavalcade, the Richmond Quarterly, the Richmond Times-Dispatch, the Dictionary of Virginia Biography, Encyclopedia Virginia, and our very own Virginia Magazine of History and Biography. Lynn is a popular speaker who's delivered more than 40 lectures on the Dooley family and other topics related to their era. She recently published her first book, The Dooley's of Richmond, Two Generations of an Irish Immigrant Family in the Old and New South, copies of which she will be glad to sign for you after the lecture. Lynn has served on the boards of a number of Richmond's cultural institutions, including the Maymont Foundation, the Edgar Allan Poe Foundation, Hollywood Cemetery Company, and Friends of Hollywood Cemetery. So please give a warm VHS welcome to Lynn Bayless.
1: Thank you so much, Andy, and thank all of you for coming. Thank you for that very kind introduction, Andy. Let's see if I can find the lecture right here. Go. I'm honored to be here and happy to share with you the story of a family who occupies a very special place in the history of Richmond, in large part because of the extraordinary gifts not just one, but two generations of the family gave to this city. Maymont, the 100-acre estate where Major and James Henry Dooley, two members of the second generation lived, is undoubtedly the best known of their gifts. But there were many others, and a number of them are, like Maymont, still shaping the quality of life here in Richmond today. One of their other gifts, St. Joseph's Villa, is almost as well known as Maymont, and continues doing its work helping children almost 100 years after Maymont's James Henry Dooley, sat on its board and left $3 million to the institution in his will. But almost no one in the general public today knows that not just James, but his immigrant father, John Dooley, also sat on that board for many years. He was an advocate of education for women. And within a dozen years of his arrival in this city, he was so well-respected in his church, and the business community, that he was named one of the four trustees in the 1848 uh, charter for St. Joseph's Female Academy and Orphanage Asylum, which permitted the Sisters of Charity to add a girl's school to the orphanage they had been operating here for a number of years. Another institution which James Dooley gave to Richmond, Dooley Hospital at the Medical College of Virginia, The city's first hospital for crippled children was torn down a few years ago, but the impressive front doorway surrounds still stand on the MCV campus behind the Egyptian building with a plaque for all to see commemorating the donor. But almost no one knows that even when Dooley Hospital was first opened, it was too small to provide the care that many children who needed orthopedic care. Nor do they know that Sally Dooley, in her will, left the money needed to buy the land, build the building, and outfit a larger replacement for it called Crippled Children's Hospital. We now call it Children's Hospital of Richmond, and it's still giving a miraculous and transformative care to children as I speak. Not many in Richmond today realize that Mrs. Dooley also gave the main branch of the Richmond Public Library on Franklin Street, the first building in this city built to be a public library. She gave it in memory of her husband, and you can see his name carved in granite over the archway just to the left of the circulation desk in the front hall of the library. The impressive granite structure which originally housed the library was encapsulated by a much larger structure in the 1970s, Nonetheless, it is still in the center of the cultural life of this city. The gifts I've mentioned now are just some of the Dooley family gifts. Nonetheless, they remind us of the wide impact their gifts continue to have beyond the gates of Maymont. Talking about the Dooley's here today is a particularly happy occasion for me. In a very real sense, I feel as though I'm bringing the Dooley's home. For, in coming to the Virginia Historical Society for an event co-sponsored by the Friends of Hollywood Cemetery. Although almost no one else here today may know it, the Dooley family connection to the Historical Society goes way back to the early days bef- before the Civil War, when John Dooley, the Irish immigrant father of the family, who had lived in Richmond for less than nine years, was invited in 1845 to join the Richmond Library Company, whose members came from the city's intellectual elite. They were readers who loved to read, and like John Dooley, had personal libraries full of books they treasured. In 1861, as the clouds of the Civil War hovered over this city, the Richmond Library Company dissolved itself and donated its books to an organization then called the Virginia Historical and Philosophical Society which even then was familiarly called by its later official name that we still use, the Virginia Historical Society. You can peruse the records of the company upstairs in the library right after this lecture if you'd like. Almost 40 years later, in 1881, John Dooley's son James, who would later live in Maymont, was elected to membership of the Virginia Historical Society. Now, the connection with Hollywood may surprise some of you who know that James and Sally Dooley are both buried in the mausoleum on the grounds of their 100-acre estate, Namont. But in fact, for many years, James Dooley owned a burial plot at Hollywood on the hillside overlooking the James River. He bought it when his father-in-law, Dr. Henry May, died suddenly. But Dooley was more than just a lot owner. He also attended lot holders' meetings, and not only suggested the establishment of a committee charged to provide, quote, protection, preservation, and government for the cemetery, but he served as a hard-working volunteer on that committee. In a sense, he was an early member of the Friends of Hollywood. His father, John Dooley, was an even earlier member of the Friends. His first contribution to the cemetery occurred in 1858 when as an officer of a Richmond militia company called the Montgomery Guard, he and his men participated in ceremonies at the reburial of President James Monroe in what is now called President's Circle at at Hollywood. That time he had to march for miles from Rockets Landing to Hollywood and stand for several hours listening to long speeches. But his next contribution was even more strenuous. In 1866, his immigrant wife, Sarah Dooley, was one of the women who formed the Hollywood Memorial Association to plan the first Memorial Day at the cemetery. John and his son Jim were among the 800 men who risked scratches, bruises, pulled muscles, and poison ivy to clean up the cemetery grounds before the ceremony. John Dooley also drafted the organizational plan for the parade that day and located a band to lead it from the center of town to the cemetery where 20,000 people gathered that day to pay tribute to the soldiers buried there. Before I share more episodes from the Dooley's lives with you, I would like to explain what launched my research into their lives. It all began years ago with a casual conversation with Drew Carneal, the late historian and lawyer, who was then chairman of the historical committee at Maymont and a member of the Maymont board. During our conversation, I asked Drew about Maymont, and he replied that the foundation was doing well raising the money needed to support the place. But although Maymont board members and tourists were greatly interested in hearing about James and Sally Dooley, who had given Maymont to the city in 1925, no one really knew much about them, because their papers had been burned shortly after Mrs. Dooley's death. Before our conversation ended, I mentioned to Drew that I had some free time, and I'd be happy to do a little research, if that would be helpful. (laughs) Not long after, Drew sent me a letter inviting me to join the historical committee, and I was asked to do a small but much-needed job, make a list of the books in the Maymont House Library for insurance purposes to see if there were any first editions or antique volumes of great value. I took three years of Monday mornings uh, making that list. Now, there were 1,200 books in that library, and they're still there. But people began to tease me and ask if I were reading the books instead of making a list. Well, I responded, I wasn't reading the books. I was reading the marginalia. And fortunately, as a result, I was learning a lot about the Dooley family, two generations of them, and discovering that all of them, not just the generation at Maymont, were literate people who loved books and that they were readers, not collectors of books. Many of the volumes were even second-hand ones with names not only of a Dooley written inside, but of the original owners, too. I was hooked. I wanted to learn more about the Dooleys. Without uh, their personal papers, however, it was like putting together a million-piece puzzle. Sometimes I found a little something over here, sometimes over there, Sometimes something went in the middle. Uh, but eventually, a picture began to fill in, every, even though there, were still, there still are some pieces missing. Eventually, I realized that not only James Dooley of Maymont, but even his father was well-known. They were both well-known, not just in Richmond and Virginia, but throughout the United States, and there was a book there for, to, for their story. This slide on screen now... Uh, is uh, based on a portrait of John Dooley, native of Limerick, Ireland, painted here in Richmond in 1859. He had arrived in Richmond in 1836 after living in Alexandria for two years when, after he immigrated to the United States with his mother and several young women thought to be his sisters. He was 24 years old then, very bright and willing to work hard. He was the son of a prosperous hat manufacturer in Limerick who had died, and apparently John sold his father's business and used the proceeds as seed money where uh, when he decided that the economy in Ireland was slowing down and he should seek opportunity across the, the Atlantic. And it is true that the Industrial Revolution had come earlier to Ireland than it did to the United States, but by the late 1820s and 30s, Its economic impact had faded and many educated middle class Irish doctors, lawyers, school teachers, businessmen and clergy were immigrating. The population of Limerick shrank by 25% between 1820 and 1840. During his two years in Alexandria, John looked for a place to establish his manufacturing business. At first, Alexandria looked like a good possibility. It was the same size as Limerick, and it was a port city, but it was not a manufacturing city. It was part of the Washington D.C. nexus even then, and politics was its business. At that period, cities like Norfolk and Richmond, however, were holding what they called commercial conventions, advertising their need for young businessmen to either take over established businesses or start new ones. A few years later, Joseph R. Anderson, a graduate of the United States Military Academy at West Point, had left the Army and was using his engineering education to build roads in the Shenandoah Valley when he was attracted by just such a blandishment to come to Richmond and take over an iron foundry business. It may have been just such a convention that attracted John Dooley to Richmond, an industrial city which had always been a hat-making center, not surprisingly, because it was a capital city, and in those days of formal dress for politicians, hats were greatly needed. John explored the possibilities, and by that time he had also fallen in love with the lovely uh, Sarah McNamara, another Irish immigrant, and he had asked her to marry him. Sarah, who was an independent thinker, unafraid of going to new places, accepted Within two weeks of their wedding at St. Mary's Catholic Church in Alexandria, they, John's mother and sisters, were comfortably settled in rented quarters in a neighborhood in one of Richmond's highest hills, just two blocks from Capitol Square. And John's first advertisement for his manufacturing business appeared in a Richmond newspaper. Now, if whoops, I pushed the wrong button. No, pushed the right button. Did anything happen? No, let's try this. There it is. This is not the first one. This one comes from much later. But notice that it's called John Dooley, hat manufacturer and dealer in caps, ladies fancy furs, and uh, trappers, pushers, and such. Well, can't read all of it from here. But you can tell uh, that his name was a big name, and that he did both retail and uh, wholesale business. And he did it throughout the South. Now, let me show you a detail from one of his bills. This is a little hard to see, but notice his name is over the the top. It is uh, a sketch by an artist of the interior of his manufacturing uh, plant. Note all the belts and pulleys, the hats hanging to dry after being dipped in what was probably mercury during the shaping process. And note the men holding various styles of hats. And in the lower left corner, the woman in the corner. The first of John's and Sarah's nine children would be born in that rented house on what is now College Street, where the Medical College of Virginia's Egyptian building would later be built across the street from the house. The Dooley's third child and second son, James Henry, who would later live at Maymont was one of those born there. This is not James, the child, but it is his mother with one of his two baby sisters, also painted in 1859 uh, by Peter Bumgrass from New York, who came down to Richmond to paint the portraits of the two Dooley's. Seven months before the Dooley's arrived in Richmond, an event took place that would play an important role in their lives and the lives of their children, all of them, but especially in James's life. The first train ever to leave Richmond a Richmond, Fredericksburg, and Potomac one left the city to travel northward with 150 passengers for a bumpy 20 mile ride to a celebratory barbecue. The trip took one hour and 31 minutes going out and an hour and 12 minutes coming back. Came back faster because you know, it was backing up the whole way. <laughs> John Dooley, uh, when the Richmond and Danville Railroad was founded 12 years later in 1848, John Dooley bought three three shares and held on to them. By 1856, he had 20 shares. And meanwhile, as the R.G. Dunn & Company records revealed, his credit rating was excellent, and he had a reputation for being honest, upright, and generous. One of the R.G. Dunn & Company reporters even wrote that he stood tall in every respect except his height. It turns out he was 5 feet 4 inches tall. (laughs) His increasing success made it possible for him to help other members of his family in Ireland immigrate to this country at his expense. For example, he paid for first-class passage for one of his sisters, her husband, and several of their children to travel across the Atlantic on the Pacific, a United States mail steamer and one of the best ships afloat. Sadly, that sister died on board, and John had to travel to New York to bring her body, her widowed husband, and their children to Richmond, where he buried his sister next to his mother in Richmond's Chaco Cemetery. His next problem was to find a job for his brother-in-law. Fortunately, Dooley had been investing in real estate in Chicago, a raw town booming on the edge of the western frontier, which he visited frequently on business. He had decided that his brother-in-law was just the person he needed to manage his real estate. Several years later, John not only paid first-class passage for yet another sister and her husband and children to cross the Atlantic, he also bought land for them in Illinois, south of Chicago, and built a house for them and paid their first-year subscription to their church. They remained on the dole for a number of years afterward. Dooley's family, however, were not the only Irish immigrants whom he helped. He also responded generously to the plight of many immigrants who had traveled across the Atlantic, many of them alone, in search of day work, such as digging canals and laying railroad tracks. He was a founder of Richmond's Hibernian Society, Established not just to help Irish immigrants, but all immigrants from other countries, despite the place of their birth, quote, religion or their politics. An article in the Dispatch explained the society's purpose, quote, If an immigrant comes to the city, friendless and moneyless, in search of employment, he will be sought out, his immediate necessities relieved, and good counsel given him, so that he may, with proper exertion, obtain an honorable living. It is believed that in this manner, many a poor fellow may be saved from degradation, if not utter ruin. Businesses, let's see, is this the right page? Yes, it is. Businesses like John Dooley's retail arm suffered. Former clients, oh, this is not the right page. Uh, I don't know what happened to the right page, but anyway. Um, it may be over here. Uh, in, uh, later in the 1850s, uh, there was a depression in uh, Richmond and businesses like John Dooley's retail arm suffered. Former clients stopped buying hats that might have been Christmas presents. Banks stopped paying species and a full-blown depression led to vast unemployment. The plight of the poor was so desperate in Richmond that a group of men formed what they called the Volunteer Reliefs Association. They divided the city into eight sections and appointed two men to be visitors for each section to identify the needy and ensure that they received help. John Dooley and Lewis Ginter put their own financial problems aside to serve together as the volunteer visitors in division number two. Even after becoming an American citizen, John Dooley remained interested in Irish political causes. And when the Young Ireland Movement advocated the violent overthrow of the British government in Ireland, he joined a nationally organized movement in the United States to raise and send money to the rebels. He served as a treasurer of the group in Richmond called the Friends of Ireland. He served as treasurer of the group And it is well to remember that the American Revolution had ended, oh, some 60 years earlier, and that the young Irish movement claimed that they were modeling their rebellion after our revolution. They quoted Thomas Paine, Thomas Jefferson, Patrick Henry in justifying their rebellion. And when they were convicted of treason and condemned to banishment in a penal colony in Australia, those who could escaped and came to the United States, where they were greeted as heroes. A number of them even came to lecture here in Richmond, and one of them, John Mitchell, became a close friend of John Dooley's, and eventually even moved to Richmond, where during the Civil War, he wrote not just for one newspaper, but two. Perhaps most importantly of all, John Dooley was an educational innovator. Not only did he actively support and encourage education for women, He was one of the founders of the Mechanics Institute, a night school for working men interested in improving their skills and extending their educational horizons. It was one of the first such schools in the nation and became the largest school of its kind in the South. It established a library, held lectures, public lectures, offered courses in such areas as mechanical drawing, chemistry, and accounting. Founded in 1842, the Mechanics Institute provided education for working men well into the middle of the 20th century, after the, the World War II and uh, into the mid-1950s. Dooley educated his own children in excellent public, private schools here in Richmond before sending two of his sons to Georgetown College and his daughters to boarding schools out of state. While the boys were studying at Georgetown, however, tension between the North and the South grew pressing, and states' rights organizations grew up in Virginia and across the South. Enmity over slavery was only one of the issues prompting the members to organize. Another was the movement to establish what was called direct trade. Merchants had grown angry over the extra time and expense required to import and export goods through northern ports, and advocated establishing shipping companies to carry them directly to and from foreign ports to Richmond. John Dooley joined the Southern Rights Association, which, at a meeting of its members, voted for resolutions to be sent to the Virginia legislature, advocating that merchants, among other things, cease as soon as practicable, doing business in states which tolerated abolition, and instead encourage and establish home manufacture. Despite his membership in the Southern Rights Association, John Dooley continued to do business in the North and the Far West, despite the political ramifications of his doing so, perhaps because he already owned a home manufacturing business. But ever alert to political issues, he was very careful to emphasize its southerness. To do so, he changed the name of his company a bit by simply positioning a new name above John Dooley Manufacturer. The new name was the Great Southern Hat Manufacturing, And he also emphasized that he had established it long before the tension before, between the North and the South had grown so troubling by adding the phrase established in 1836. In 1850, Dooley became a founding officer of one of Richmond's pre-Civil War militia companies, the Montgomery Guard, and nine years later, when a number of militia companies, including the Montgomery Guard, were called to do duty at Harper's Ferry. After John Brown and his insurgents raided there, John Dooley and his men were the last to come home after John Brown's hanging. The impact of the events at Harper's Ferry were described in the morning newspaper the day they uh, returned in poetic form. And I'll read the poem to you from the front page. All classes now are in suspense to know which way the winds from Harper's Ferry blow. Some whisper peace, some allude to war, which all alike must equally abhor. To said that this suspense does injure trade and very many people feel afraid. Perhaps not surprisingly, during that time, John Dooley seems to have become very absent-minded. A man whose R.G. Dunn & Company report noted that he often paid his bills early, before they were due, forgot to pay the room, board, and tuition for his two sons at Georgetown. And as he explained in a letter to the treasurer of the college sometime later, quote, Dear Reverend Friend, this morning Mrs. Dooley called my attention to your letter of the 16th, received while I was absent in the North. You will please find and close my check on the Farmers Bank of Virginia for an amount which will probably astonish you, (laughs) $388.92, to your order as treasurer. With best regards to yourself and Reverend Father Early and all the professors, I remain sincerely your friend, John Dooley." While at Georgetown, both Dooley boys, Jim and Jack, participated in extracurricular activities. They belonged to the Dramatic Society and performed on stage. Jim was also a member of the Debate Club and the Reading Room Association, at whose meetings the members discussed current events and political matters. In his senior year, 1859, he participated in a week-long debate on the topic, Should the South Secede Now? The debate ran overtime on the last afternoon and was postponed until after dinner when it reopened in the basement of the college building. There, all pretense of civility failed and a fistfight broke out. According to an eyewitness report, in the center of it all was Jim Dooley of Virginia, with cohorts from Maryland, Louisiana, and Georgia, mixed up in all the melee in inextricable confusion when somebody suddenly put out the lights and left us in total ludicrous darkness. A lull in the storm ensued and at this moment, the door opened and the astronomy professor appeared in skullcap, descending the stairs, holding a candle above his head and shading his eyes as he peered dubiously into the crowd uh, to the quarter of the contending hosts. That ended the fight and the debates for the rest of the year. Despite his disgrace, Jim Dooley was still first in his class and he was chosen to give an oration at his graduation at the end of the semester. Shortly after graduation, he began to read law with Richmond's most erudite lawyer, William Green, who later became the first professor in the law school at the University of Richmond. But the clouds of Civil War hung ominously over Jim's studies and interrupted them in the summer of 1861 when his father and the Montgomery Guard, now company C of the first Virginia, in the Confederate Army, left Richmond for Manassas. Shortly before the opening of the Battle of First Manassas, John Dooley sat by his tent and did something very surprising for a businessman used to handling legal documents, whose company was the largest of its kind in the United States. He had to write a holograph will, expressing, and I'm quoting, fullest confidence in the discretion of his wife Sarah, and leaving everything to her, including his business, if he should die in battle, and, quote, expressing his wish that his mercantile business shall be carried on as usual, if at all practicable, but leaving the decision about that to her judgment. He also wrote a brief document that morning conveying his power of attorney to his son, Jim. In a note attached to it, he wrote, I have appointed my son, James H. Dooley, my attorney in fact, to execute all papers that may be necessary to the transaction of my business during my absence in war. For the next eight months, James Dooley, who turned 21 in January, was in charge of the retail and manufacturing operations of the Great Southern Hat Manufactory. And with his father away at war, Jim was initiated into the business world at a time when the company had large contracts from the Confederate government and also faced a manpower shortage. Additional government contracts required shortly a concomitant expansion of manufacturing operations, over which the young Dooley also presided. As a result, he emerged from the war years with a sophisticated understanding of the business world, unusual for young men in their mid-twenties. After a year of leading his men in battle, exhausted and ill after sleeping in tents and marching long miles between battles, Jim's father decided to retire from active duty and return to his manufacturing business. Meanwhile, after learning that the President of the Confederate States, Jefferson Davis, had recommended to his legislature that it institute conscription, son Jim decided not to wait and enlisted as a private in the First Virginia, his service overlapping his father's by a few weeks. A month later, he was severely wounded in the Battle of Williamsburg and left to die on the battlefield because the Confederate government, expecting the war to last only a year at most, had not provided ambulances to carry off the wounded from the battle. He was rescued by volunteers from Williamsburg, however, and brought to a temporary hospital at Bruton Parish Church where he was found by a member of the Tucker family and taken to their house, which you can still see in Colonial Williamsburg, by the way, where he recovered sufficiently to become a prisoner of war. Jim's smashed right wrist would never completely heal. He would suffer palsy in that arm for the rest of his life and use a cane not to help himself walk, but to steady his arm. Meanwhile, his father, newly retired from the regiment, waited at home for almost a week to find out whether his brilliant Georgetown graduate son 21 years old, was dead or alive. John Dooley's distress propelled him to take action to prevent other young men from suffering Jim's fate. Oops, it's gone. Oops. Oh, well, let's see if we can go back now. Let's see, here we go. There, this is a carte de visite that lives here at the Virginia Historical Society for the Ambulance Committee which John Dooley found it within a week of his son's wounding at Williamsburg. Should I stop or should I go? Maybe I should go. He rounded up 30 volunteers who had carriages or wagons to join him in going to battlefields to bring out the wounded while battles swirled around them. The group, which was soon to be called the Ambulance Committee, Eventually, was a cadre of 90 men strong who served at their own expense and risked mortal danger to themselves as they did their work for the remaining years of the war. In April 1865, a few days before the end of the war, Richmond's business district was engulfed by what was called the evacuation fire. Over 900 businesses were destroyed And John Dooley lost the entire wholesale and retail business, which had taken him almost 30 years to build. Although he eventually would rebuild, he died suddenly of pneumonia in February 1868, before he was fully able to recover his losses. His son Jim, then 27 years old, became the head of the Dooley family and began to follow in his father's footsteps. A few few months after the war had ended in April 1865, he had received his license to practice law and had begun to scratch out a living in what became Military District No. 1, where an occupying federal army controlled the government. During that period, Jim developed a reputation as a defender of the little man. He continued his work, meanwhile, as secretary of the St. Vincent de Paul Society to help the poor, which had been founded by his father, and, uh, and he also slipped into his father's seat on the board of St. Joseph's Female Academy and Orphan Asylum. People in Richmond and even the newspapers began to call him Major Dooley, despite the fact that it was his father, not he, who had earned that rank on the battlefield. <laughs> he must have looked like his father or had a similar winning personality. But that reminded people of his father. He would be called Major Dooley for the rest of his life, and he is still referred to that way today, despite the fact that he personally often reminded people that he had only served as a private while on active duty. In the summer of 1868, Jim met a young woman named Sadie May at one of Virginia's famous springs, and the following summer, he wooed her earnestly and proposed but their wedding almost didn't happen. Two days before the date, Jim was overwhelmed with trying to clean up work at his office when he realized he'd forgotten to get the marriage license. (laughs) He seems to have sent a telegram saying so to Sadie, who must have been upset by the news. (laughs) Luckily, her brother-in-law, T.C. Elder, was a lawyer, and he took her to the circuit court building in Stanton where she did something unusual for a woman in that period, she applied for the license herself. (laughs) And he signed as witness, saying he knew her well and swore she was old enough to marry. (laughs) And so it was that on September 11th, 1869, in one of the bride's relative's parlors in Stanton, a first-generation American married a member of a distinguished Virginia family who traced its lineage to two colonial governors and ancestors who had fought in the American Revolution. It was a marriage of polar opposites that would last until Jim's death 53 years later. Their honeymoon was to be a working honeymoon. They went first to Washington and then to Chicago, where Jim planned to work on settling his father's estate there. When they arrived in the elegant Willard Hotel in Washington after their wedding, Jim did something that most men do not do on the first night of their honeymoon. He sat down to write a letter to his mother. (laughs) In it, he asked his mother to ask his brother-in-law to go to his office and pick up the bundle of papers labeled Chicago Papers and send them to the law firm in Chicago where he planned to work. Before they left Chicago, Jim wrote again to his mother, (laughs) saying that Sadie did not enjoy that part of her honeymoon (laughs) because she had to stay in the hotel all day while he went to work at the law firm. (laughs) Well, you have to understand that Chicago was still a raw town on the edge of the western frontier, just as it had been in his father's day, and it wouldn't have been safe or appropriate for a proper southern belle like Sadie to walk along the streets without an escort. Their honeymoon, by the way, was only the first of many vacation trips for Sally and Jim that were always working holidays. Now, let's see. Do you suppose I could try and get something back again? Maybe I messed it up, do you think? But let's see. Now, this is a picture of Jim. Hmm? Oh, the projector's not working. Oh, shucks, there's a nice picture of Jim just about the time of his marriage, and another one of Sadie. She's very sweet and has flowers in her hair (laughs) and looking rather worried for obvious reasons. Uh, Sally may not have realized it then, but she had married a budding politician. The summer before their second anniversary, her young husband ran for the House of Delegates on the Irish Conservative ticket and won a seat in the House as one of Richmond's delegates. The previous March, he had proven his Irish heritage by successfully persuading the men at the meeting of that wing of the party to organize the first post-war St. Patrick's Day parade, a tradition that persisted in Richmond long after that first one. (coughs) Dooley served three terms in the House before retiring from public service, citing the the Uh, I'm sorry, the duties of his business. He wasn't specific about the nature of his business, but he then had a burgeoning law practice, was vice president of a young insurance company, and was accumulating real estate at quite a clip. He was also the sole member of the Dooley clan who earned enough to support this extended Dooley family, which included his mother, his sisters, and his brothers-in-law. By 1879, two years after he left the House of Delegates, railroads began to occupy a large portion of Dooley's business after he and two other young lawyers, Joseph Bryan and Thomas Logan, concerned that Virginia railroads were still in bad shape from the war and that they were slipping into northern hands, decided to bid on the Richmond and Danville Railroad, then being auctioned off by the Pennsylvania Railroad that had acquired it after the war. The three lawyers managed to borrow enough money to bring control of the Richmond and Danville back to Richmond. And they set the goal of expanding the railroad beyond Virginia borders, Besides, the, despite the fact that the Richmond and Danville charter specifically forbade it to extend beyond those borders. Their solution was to charter a holding company, which may have been the first railroad holding company in the country, although I haven't yet been able to prove that. The Richmond, it was called the Richmond and West Point Terminal and Warehouse Company. Uh, And the charter of it overrode the charter of the Richmond and Danville and explicitly encouraged that company to build, buy, or lease other railroads throughout the south all the way to the Texas border. Dooley would eventually serve as the vice president of the Richmond and Danville and also its general counsel. The men also chartered a railroad construction company called the Richmond and Danville Extension Company, which would build new roads, connect others, and make the gauge width between the tracks of each road identical. In short order, they had extended the 1868 mile long Danville to an over 8,000 mile long behemoth, the fastest growing and second longest railroad in the country, only 411 miles shorter than the Atchison, Topeka, and the Santa Fe, and 525 miles, uh, that was shorter, and the 525 miles longer than the Union Pacific. The next slide, unfortunately, was the Richmond and Danville map. And I wanted you to note that the, the uh, train went through Alabama. Birmingham was the location of an iron and steel business that the Richmonders, as they were soon being called in the national press, invested in and eventually controlled. It provides a prime example of the method they used in industrializing the South. They built the railroads and its bridges. They developed industries at intervals along their tracks, commissioned geological investigations to locate natural resources nearby those tracks, that they planned to exploit and transport, and they established housing developments near their industries. In Alabama, Dooley was president of one such housing development and also of a trolley car system, which linked his development to the city of Birmingham. By then, Sally and Jim, who had lived in a boarding house for the first 12 years of their marriage, had bought a 60-year-old house at 212 West Franklin Street in one of Richmond's most fashionable neighborhoods. You can still see it, by the way, although there are two huge wings that have been added. It still sits on the corner of the block west of the Jefferson Hotel on the opposite side of the street. To see it, look for the stuccoed wall around the front yard. A few years later, they had also decided to have their portraits done, and I'm sorry I can't show them to you today. They now hang in the front hall at Maymont Mansion, and that will give you a good excuse this afternoon to go and take a (laughs) tour of the mansion. At about that same time that they bought their first house, Dooley and the rest of Richmond responded to the second of two terrible famines in Ireland by holding a rally to raise money to send to the starving. Jim was one of four speakers at the event, which raised thousands of dollars to help them. Jim was also a founder, as his father had been before him, of a group to help immigrants arriving in Richmond settle into life here and become good citizens. It was called the Irish Benevolence Society. And Jim also advertised his legal services in John Mitchell's New York newspaper, The Irish Citizen. Immigrants could learn his name just as soon as they stepped off the boat that helped them across the Atlantic. In the summer of 1888, Sally as she was then being called, and Jim took a vacation out west and even visited Yellowstone along the way. But they also visited San Francisco, where Jim looked into steamship connections for possible railroads coming from Richmond. His loyalties were always local, but his vision was global. Uh, <clears throat> He investigated as well the possibility of buying a small, unfinished railroad, the Seattle Lakeshore and Eastern, a road up in the Washington Territory, which he and his partners actually did eventually buy. Jim also stopped in Chicago, where he apparently visited the inventor of an electronic device, device, then called the Telautograph. It was the prototype of what we now call the fax machine. Jim did the legal work required to charter it and establish its headquarters in Richmond. They had lived on West Franklin Street for about four or five years when one afternoon they were riding horseback out in Henrico County when they traveled up a road they had never ridden on before and discovered the land they would later call Maymont. Jim bought almost 100 acres shortly afterward, and they hired a young architect to design a house to be built on the highest point, overlooking the James River. For 20 years by then, Sally had served as an active volunteer on committees in Richmond and in organizations such as the St. Paul Episcopal Church Home for aged and infirm ladies. In the years immediately prior to selling their house on Franklin Street, she became very interested in historic preservation and showed her capacity for leadership by becoming the first regent of the first Richmond chapter of the Daughters of the American Revolution, which is still active in Richmond today. She also held its first meeting of the DAR in her parlor at 212. She also became one of the 13 founders of the Virginia Association for Colonial Dames, which is still alive and well in Richmond, although it uses a slightly different name now. The house at Maymont took three years to build, and during that time, the American economy took a serious downturn, first in the South and then across the nation. The panic of 1893 forced the Richmond Terminal, the Richmond Danville, and all the other big railroads across the country into bankruptcy. The iron and steel manufacturing complex that Dooley and Bryan controlled in Alabama closed its furnaces. The work on the teleautograph company stalled and Dooley did something he had also done on West Franklin Street during a sudden but less serious economic downturn in the 1880s. He deeded over his unfinished house in Henrico County and the land surrounding it to Sally. From then on, she, not he, was the sole owner of Maymont. Needless to say, the Dooley's recovered from the economic problems of the mid-1890s and they went on to live at Maymont for over 30 years. Sally, who was an avid gardener, would plant over 600 rose bushes on the grounds, and according to her husband, thousands of flowers. They would plant specimen trees from all over the world and create a private arboretum, which experts still visit to this day to study. Major Dooley would also build numerous summer houses at what he called places of beauty throughout the estate, and they would hire experts to build Italian and Japanese gardens. By 1906, Sally had written a book that was published in New York by Doubleday Page and Company, a publishing house that had the largest stable of best-selling authors in the country. Its title was *Them Good Old Times. Written in dialect, it was a narrative set in the 20th century, told by a former slave to a grandchild who asked him what life was like before the Civil War. For today's readers, it provides an ironic coda to the work Sally's husband did, in building the New South. Jim Dooley went on to serve as the founder of yet another railroad trunk line, the Seaboard Airline, and eventually, in his 70s, to sit on the board of the Chesapeake and Ohio Railway until the United States entered the First World War and Woodrow Wilson's administration nationalized the railroads. The Dooley's would also build another, even grander mansion, a marble one they called Swananoa, on Afton Mountain, closer to Stanton than to Richmond. but. It's time to bring to a close the episodes from both generations of the Dooley's lives that I have shared with you. And you have seen, I I hope, that both generations experienced not only great wealth but also economic disaster, but that regardless of their own economic situation, both generations served their communities and their countries with uncommon energy and generosity. Thank you very much. have Some questions. I'm assuming um, John Dooley belonged to St. Peter's when he first came yes, to Richmond. He did. did they switch to St. Patrick's when that was built in 1859? No, they, they, the whole family stayed at St. Peter's. And one of the uh, things I learned not so long ago was that uh, the Dooley daughters, um, that would be Sadie, who was a nun, and Alice and Florence. Um, and there was one other one whose name right now I can't remember. Uh, were godchildren to a lot of uh, the children of, I'm glad, godmothers to a lot of the black children whose families belonged to St. Peter's in the generation that followed. Uh, and that the black community is very proud of that. Uh, they are written about in the history of the black Catholic Church in the city. Yeah, thank you. Yes? Uh, can you tell us something about uh, Dooley's support for the East 1916 rebellion? The ni- I, I don't know much about that, unfortunately. Uh, as, as you could tell, I had to go looking for various and sundry things, and that was one of the things I skipped. He was so involved in uh, railroad business and other I- I- businesses such as the iron and steel business down in Alabama, that I never had a chance to look into that. But that's something that should be examined and he very well might have been helpful. I do know that he never, neither he nor his father, ever went to Ireland. Now his aunt Alice and uh, her, his aunt uh, Florence also did go. So uh, I don't know whether it was because he wasn't interested or whether he felt uh, uh, somehow alien from, from what was going on. But his father, I'm sure, would have supported them if he were still alive. Yeah. Another question? Yeah. Yes. First of all, Aaron Gabra. Thank you. <laughs> and, uh, he started the uh, electric trolley company. Yes. Could you- the same year that uh, the tel came to Richmond, was chartered to come to Richmond, uh, it, Dooley went to New York, straight to New York, within the day of returning from that trip to the West Coast that took him through Chicago. Uh, he, he, the, court, the circuit court came in uh, session in vacation to charter the tel and then he took the train to New York City, and he was interviewed by the, a newspaper called the New York Star. And he was asked about politics, the political situation in Virginia and, and the South. And he talked about that, but he managed to fit in there that they had the first electric troll- trolley in the, in the world and that they would soon have the teleautograph. But he didn't mention that he had anything to do with either of them. No. However, he was, he was known even before then as one of the best known men from the South on Wall Street. He did not mind going and doing what is called doing puffs for Southern business. Even though he was a lawyer, and a very, very good one as it turns out, he was always being asked to be general counsel of one company or another. And in fact, that's where he made a lot of his money. It was not just in owning stock, but actually in doing very fine legal work. You see his name on a lot of charters. Um, In any case, uh, he was well known in New York. And I, I enjoyed so much finding that. That was another reason I knew there was a book here.
0: Yeah. We have time for one more question, and it's in the back there, Graham. own slaves?
1: The original family did have four slaves. They had two women who apparently were worked in the house. One of them was named Aunt Chloe, and you'll find her name in a diary of kept during the Civil War while his younger brother, James Junk, younger brother Jack was prisoner of war up on Johnson Island in Lake Erie. He talked about knowing how to make tea, how to boil tea because he had watched Aunt Chloe, the slave, and his mother make tea in the kitchen uh, on Broad Street where they lived. Um, but the, the other two slaves were probably, uh, did the heavy living. One was a younger man, uh, almost a boy in, in his teens, and the other was a, a man in his 30s who probably drove the carriage and answered the door and was a man about the place. You know, the Dooleys uh, were chastised by the brother-in-law who worked in Chicago. By the way, Maymont luckily acquired a, uh, a, 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 uh, some letters from the the uh, brother-in-law in Chicago, a one-sided correspondence. On- Maimon only was able to buy the uh, letters from the brother-in-law, no John Dooley responses to the brother-in-law. But in one of those letters, the brother-in-law chastises Dooley for being a slave owner. He's, how could an Irishman be a slave owner? Because, of course, the implication was the Irish had been sl- made slaves by the British. Uh, and there, what, what John Dooley might have said to that is lost, unless someday his response to uh, Michael Byrne's letters is discovered. We always hope if you ever have piles of letters in your <laughs> attic, for goodness look, sake, look at them and bring them to the Virginia Historical Society for safekeeping. They'll let you have copies, and they'll stay in good shape, and they'll be very helpful to scholars who would like to keep an accurate account of uh, uh, historical events alive for the future. Thank you very, very much.